You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays, p.m., heard exclusively here on Internet Radio Station OC talkradio.net a programming note starting in april this show which has been on the air for four years in this time slot will be moving to wednesdays at 4 p.m so if you're listening to us live continue to do that on tuesdays until otherwise notified but no later than the first week of april i believe we'll be broadcasting at 4 p.m but on wednesday afternoons if you're listening to the show live or uh, I welcome you to the program, and you may want to participate in one of the two conversations that we have today. It's easy to do. Simply find the community chat room section of octalkradio.net's website, log in with your Twitter handle, and that will connect you right to our engineer, who on the other side of the glass today is, let me look, yes, Paul Roberts, our longtime engineer, who continues to engineer our show flawlessly. This will allow you to communicate with me, your host, and hopefully I can work your thoughts and ideas into one of the two interviews that I have planned for today here on Critical Mass Radio Show. This show is brought to you by our sponsors. I want to thank our commercial sponsors, Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, Smart Business Magazine, and Smart Stop Self Storage. You know, the goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience, make better decisions. And the way that we do that is by bringing you thought leaders and peer executives who have ideas and experiences that they can share with you. It does give me great pleasure to work, welcome our first guest today. And you're going to find it very interesting because Dennis Bacci really limits himself to one decision a year. And Dennis, welcome to Critical Mass radio show. Oh, thank you and welcome. I'm very pleased to be here with, with you today. Today, And let me make sure I'm saying your last name correctly. How do you say your last name, Dennis? It's a Norwegian Baki. Baki. Okay. Baki, just as yeah. my engineer told me and then when I said it, I mispronounced it. I apologize. But in the pre-show warm-up, I had it correct. So, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the host does make mistakes. I'm holding in my hand uh, a book that you've authored and we're going to get to this in a little bit because I'm this show is all about helping people make better decisions, and I really want to get inside your thinking relative to your book, The Decision Maker. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your professional background, what we say here on the radio program, your path to your current firm, which is Imagine Schools. Uh, well, I, I, my uh, my, my uh, beginnings are really uh, in an idyllic uh, valley in the rural Washington State near Mount Baker. Um, uh, where I played a little football, went to the University of Puget Sound, off to the Harvard Business School, uh, and uh, on to uh, the federal government uh, in Washington D.C. When uh, where I I worked in the in the uh, education department and the Office of Management and Budget, and uh, from there uh, co-started uh, an energy company with a, with my partner Roger Sand, who's from the Bay Area. Uh, became uh, became the largest independent power producer in the world uh, in about 15 countries, uh, producing electricity and running our power plants. So that was that's where I started. And uh, about uh, four or five years ago, uh, my wife and I started uh, Imagine Schools to uh, see if we could have a different kind of organization that would uh, try to em- uh, empower people and. Uh, uh, to create the the best possible school, uh, especially aimed at um, lower income kids. What was the inspiration for that? What was the inspiration? Yes. What was the inspiration for starting Imagine Schools? Well, well, first first of all, this was something we could do together. I mean, we were obviously uh, you know we're working all the time, but uh, but uh, in in uh, the first company and travel together but we didn't we weren't actually working together uh she's an educator from uh early years of her life and um we just thought this would really be a fun thing to do kids are already often we're often uh graduating from 
in college, and we thought we could uh, we could actually uh, do something together to really help humanity, and uh, uh, and that was we chose the route of of trying to uh, operate charter schools, and, uh, and we we do now about uh, about forty thousand students uh, around the country. Okay, Dennis, you're of the close to 700 guests that we've had on Critical Mass Radio shows in four years. You're the first CEO, co-founder of a charter school that we've had. So I'd like to ask our guests, tell me what's different about your business. You know, what's your differentiation? So I'm not quite sure how I I tweak that question to your specific business, but help us to understand what is different about the way you're building the education within charter school. A couple of major points. Uh, we we started uh, the school and we're, we operate as a nonprofit, so there's a little difference than that and then the, the private company where you're a profit making company. Uh, and it's not. I, I didn't want it to be less disciplined. I wanted I wanted to to make it. Um, you know, we we wanted to really have steps that we had to take, but also performance. It had to be. We really. Like you do in, in the business world, you have to perform. You have to. Uh, nobody's going to buy your product if it's any good. Uh, and, and in charter schools, it's really the same way because you don't. The parents have to choose you. It's like a customer. And so we had to be. We have to be good enough that they actually want to go there, as opposed to the public school where you don't really know whether you're any good or not because because people are assigned. And we like that. I, I wanted that. I wanted that kind of. Uh, a discipline where we have to be uh, good enough, uh, and we have to live within our means, which we have to do in the business in the businesses as well. So there's no difference there. But the the difference between uh, us and a and a, a government operated school, charter schools have to be good enough that people choose them day after day, uh, which makes us put it on our toes all the time to do a good job. What's your philosophy, guiding principle for how you're scaling? You said you had 40,000 students now in your charter schools. So what's your philosophy behind how you're growing that business? Well, we don't have a we don't have a real we don't have a plan that says, "Okay, we're going to grow so much." Uh, you know, we we just said, "Let's just let's just go out and find out where the need is, where where parents um are not not satisfied." With their public school choices, because this is a public school. Charters are charters. Then you don't pay. You know, I, I presume you know that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a public school, uh, but it's a strange public school in the sense that there's no signed borders. You you have to, and you have to create something that the customer, the parents, have to decide is is good or not, and uh, it has to be good enough to their kids. So. It's a very, very, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing. That's the best thing about business is that you have to be good enough for the people to actually, you know, buy your product. And and in most public government operations, you don't have to do that. And it makes it very difficult to be high quality if you don't have the pressure to compete, to be really good. So the parents here are like the customer, like the customer in the store. They don't, they don't, they don't come. <laughs> they don't send their most precious. A person in their lives, their their children, to your school unless you're doing a good job. So where do the funds come from? Well, the fun the fun is uh, enjoying something. The key to that, making it fun, was was to have people be able to make decisions and hold themselves responsible. Any company, this is not that has nothing to do with public or private organizations in this case this came, and I went through this in, in my book joy at work but to try to create a place where people have opportunities to be a human being and the essence of a human being is our ability to think reason make decisions and then hold ourselves responsible that's very different than any other species we have that opportunity and if we can find a place a place to work like at home for example uh, where you have the chance to to work and Make a difference and 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 get real good feedback as to how your children are doing, but but most companies, you aren't allowed to really do all the things that a human being can do. We don't get to make very many decisions in most of our, in most of, most of the bosses make most of the decisions in the companies, and so at, in our school we want the, all the decisions to be made not by the principal, not by the 
you know, the superintendent or whoever it might be who's in the leadership roles, but by the teachers and uh, and the local principals, but as many teachers making decisions as possible so that they can really, really enjoy what they're doing. We're going to take, that's interesting, I want to explore that a little bit more, and then I want to get into your latest book. I know you've written two books, you've referenced them here on the show, and that's great. I, I, we're going to get to that after our first commercial timeout. I'm going to ask you to share a little bit about your direct experience with having the First Lady, Michelle Obama, as I understand it, visit uh, one of the Southeast Imagine schools to help uh, build a new Kaboom playground for the students. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. We're going to be back with Dennis Baki. But first, uh, here's a commercial uh, sponsor. A moment. Time out. Thank you. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. This is Rick Franzi. Dennis Bakke is our guest. And before the break, we said we we're going to ask you to share a little bit about your experience with Michelle Obama. Could you set the context and then kind of talk to us about what it's like to have such a prominent and important individual visit your school? Well, first of all, let me put a plug in uh, for the Kaboom uh, people. They they are, uh, it's a group of, a nonprofit group that, it goes around the country and uh, helps schools, especially schools in poverty areas, uh, to to have create playroom playgrounds for for children. Uh, you never in suburban areas. There's no problem. You know, always have great great playgrounds. And but uh, this organization, the Kaboom organization, is just has done a done a wonderful job of of uh, allowing setting up a situation, getting people to get to organized community people and people like the, the president's uh, wife and and uh, pro basketball players like uh, Antoine Jameson and just it was and and they did one of one of these schools we've had two or three of our schools uh, three I think now around the country who have, get a kaboom and what what they do is in one day they've got it so well planned one day they make make uh, they put a whole playground together. It was like several hundred people working. They give everybody a job. They're extremely well organized, and they just do a beautiful job of, uh, of making it possible to have a, a place where kids can play safely, uh, and uh, in, especially in neighborhoods like the inner cities of some of our uh, where a lot of our schools are, uh, which they would not have a, an opportunity to have such a great place to play and safe. And, and so I, I love the organization. Uh, we we've uh, we've been able to build two or three, four of those in our in various of our in our uh, schools around the country, and uh, it is a, it's a wonderful mission that they're that that group is on, and and to have the president or the uh, first lady there, and uh, and the secretary of education, both of whom of course operate out of Washington D.C., it was uh, it was something to uh, really add the the. the to that whole that whole uh, program, so uh, we had a lot of people from the Congress, a lot of the uh, the, the folks who work in the offices of the of the Congress were also there. And uh, one day, whole playground all up finished. It was beautiful. So, were you able to be at the school when she arrived? I was, and so was my wife, and uh, it was a 
delightful for us to uh, be a, be a part of it. Talk about your books now. I know you mentioned the joy at work, joy at work, which I understand is a 2005 New York Times bestseller. Congratulations! Your latest book, which just came out here in this month, I think it was on the fifth of this month, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the title of that book is The Decision Maker. C- can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to write these two books? Let's kind of go in sequence. So let's start with the joy at work, and then we'll talk about the decision maker. But sort of, what's the content of each book? The premise behind the the, the main part. I mean, uh, joy at work, of course, has a lot of biographical kind of parts to it as well. But the the main point I've tried to make uh, in my my lifelong journey here is to try to create the most fun workplace in human history. How does that happen? What is it? What does it take to do that? And that's been my journey trying to figure that out. And, and what it comes to is that, you know, let me just tell you a story, a little story about uh, what where I found out, where I realized that I was going down the tr- track that, it, man, it didn't make sense. I was told in my very first power plant that we, we uh, had uh, taken over a story. I was told that our people who work in that power plant we had just taken it over, said within a, a few weeks of working in the power plant when they were 25 years old, they would look 30, 40 years later and put a date on the calendar when they could retire and get out of there. And I said, that this is a plant we had bought, of course, and so I, I, I thought, wow, that, that's terrible. I mean, those people aren't having any fun. There's no joy at work there. I started on a journey to figure out how in the world I could make an old power plant a fun place to work. And so that's been my journey, and that was what Joy at Work is about, and, and of course, the decision-maker carries this on. And that is the key to making a fun place to work is that where every person gets to act like a person, the essence of a human being is our ability to think, reason, make decisions, and hold ourselves responsible. And so what I try to do and have I done in all, in all my organizations is to, in every case, try to get decision-making at the, to every single person, important decisions, and, and get the bosses stopping making all those decisions, or even, even the big ones, to try to parcel them out so that everybody has a chance to be, in essence, a human being. And that's what really creates the joy in a workplace. It's a very simple thing, almost impossible to do, because most of us bosses, you know, I went to Harvard Business School, right? That We think when we get out of there, we're God's gift to decision-making. And, uh, and, and so you have to rein that back, and all of our leaders had to do that so that others could step forward and have a chance to make important decisions and then hold themselves responsible. So let's talk about your first power plant because I, I'm wondering um, that type of a message. How long in your did it take you to begin to get people to believe you and actually create a culture where you had distributed decision making and you were able to impact the organization to the degree that you uh, talk about? Years, especially at first, uh, and especially with a plant that had been operating for 25 years on a very different principle. Until I got enough leaders that bought into this idea that leadership was about servanthood, you know, lifting people up instead of making decisions and holding people down. Giving people a chance to really dig in and take responsibility. It took a long time to get that to happen, and I, I finally got a few people, a few leaders who were willing to do that and try it, and then I I did a survey every year of every person in all across the world, and it took me several months to read all the surveys, but I did to make sure that every place was moving in the direction of making a fun, joyful place to work by giving up on the decisions by leaders. Dennis, did you ever encounter resistance on the part of the employee population to want to make those decisions? The reason why I ask is very simply, sometimes it's, liberating to be in an organization where you abdicate the responsibility for making the decisions, which means you also can abdicate the responsibility for the results of those decisions. Yes, there there are... If you've been 
uh, operating a certain way for 20 or 30 years and you haven't been allowed to make decisions, there's a, there's a great fear that maybe, maybe I can't do it, I, maybe I don't know enough to do this, or, you know, it's not my job, I don't get paid that much, I shouldn't, I shouldn't want to. Right. But those very same people uh, are loving uh, the, the work they do playing golf and making decisions in places like that, and eventually most of them get it. Uh, there are a few, obviously there are people, if, you, if they've been working some way for 30 years, it's difficult to change. But I even saw in Ireland and, and in most of the Rust Belt of the United States where we had power plants that almost, I'd say, 95% of the people would come around. The problem was not those people. The problem was the bosses because and maybe the first-level bosses like the supervisors who had just come out of, you know, they, they had maybe had an engineering degree or they had gone to college a little bit, and the, they were difficult to, you know, they, they'd work really hard to become a boss. Mm-hmm. And to uh, take that away from them, or, or at least limit it to a, in a very significant way, uh, was quite difficult for some people. And well, I had to make some changes that way. But it's ne- it was never 100% people buying in to uh, making decisions and holding themselves responsible. But I'd say very high percentage. Even in in places like Hungary and other places around the world, they were willing to do it. So, from your experience, both directly managing and building this culture, writing about it in the Joy at Work and the latest book, The Decision Maker, do you see a, a correlation between your your philosophy and employee engagement? No question. Uh, people become engaged when they. When they're making decisions, I mean, why do why is it more fun to be a parent than it is to work in most organizations? Why do mom and dads love their job? Because they are making a difference. They are, you know, they are lifting children up to, and they see how wonderful it is to see the rewards of someone who develops. And it's the same thing in the business thing. And you start to see other people engage and and become excited about and and filled with joy, really. I mean, they really want, uh, they love to be there, even though they're still doing some of the same work, but now they have more control over it. So hard work is not what's bad. Frustration of not being able to use your brain and your decision-making abilities is what kills the joy in the workplace. From your experience running global organizations, you mentioned that your power company had a global footprint. Did you notice any cultures or countries, because we're on the Internet and people listen to us around the world, although our target market are Southern California and U.S. executives of small and mid-market companies. But Dennis, did you find any any culture that sort of got this idea more readily than, say, we do here in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, there's a difference everywhere. Harder in the Indian culture, I think, uh, than than say European. Okay. Not totally. It just takes longer. And uh, it can be done. So yes, there's there's a difference depending on how how long and how how much essentially slavery kind of approach that people have been into. It's extremely difficult to uh, to change quickly if you've been working for 20 years uh, in a different atmosphere. Young people get it easier than older folks. There's mm-hmm. no no question about that. Yeah, I think that we uh, it, we had one of our peer group meetings uh, this morning, and we were talking about the impact of a uh, you know the successive generations on the workplace, and and there was a consensus among the business leaders this morning that the younger generations want more consensus in the decision making process. They want their voice to be heard, regardless of their experience base. They want to feel like the organization is listening to them, whether they've kind of earned their stripes yet or not, which in many ways can be very beneficial for the right type of organization that learns how to harness that. You you even say, I think, as a tagline to, to your book, unlock the potential of everyone in your organization uh, one decision at a time. So, so is that what your experience taught you this system can do for a business? It's not the full purpose. The, what I really would like to do is I want I want success. I want I want to have better businesses. Obviously, I want people to to be more successful, but they need to do that in a way that is allowing people to be human beings. That is to be able to think, reason, make decisions, and hold themselves accountable. 
uh, and that's where the joy comes from. And it will, in fact, make your business better, better performing. But the main, the main thing that I think is really important here—that's the real change, as opposed to being a, uh, you know, a new technique or uh, getting better performance. Uh, there are lots of those, you know, lots of performance, and part of part of the performance uh, things you go to the business schools, and I've taught at many, many business schools on this, is this business of freeing people up to make decisions. The problem is that they do that saying, oh, that's going to make your business more successful. Well, that's true, but if that's your motive, the people will get it. They will, they will not participate nearly as much if they think they're just being used mm. to make more money. If they think that they're being given this opportunity to make decisions because it's the right thing to do, that you care about me just as much as you do about profits, then uh, it works. If someone wanted to learn more about each book, possibly buy the book, how do they find the books? Well, I think uh, the, the book will be out, the new book. Joy Work is out everywhere. It's a national bestseller. You can buy it on uh, Amazon or any of the other book places or, or uh, uh, find it in any, any, any book bookstores. The, uh, the uh, new one will, of course, in the bookstores as well. Uh, and or you know they, so they can they can uh, secure a copy. Uh, I think it I think it will hit the hit the bookstores in the next uh, few weeks. So, well, continued success with I mean great success with your second book. I, I love the uh, your philosophy to it and the high standard and the integrity with which you apply your principles. I I think that's really key. So, Dennis, thank you for being on the radio program and. Thanks for being a friend of Critical Mass and a part of our community. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Bucky, and uh, here is his book. I have a copy of uh, the Decision Maker in my hand, and as you know, we we focus this show about making better, more informed decisions, and this is really an entering interesting premise, something worth evaluating and considering the unleashing the power of your employees and doing the right thing for the right reason. That's a very powerful message. All right. Our second guest is waiting. My producer engineer has given me the thumbs up that Richard Tate, who is CEO of Cliffside Malibu Treatment Center, will be joining us after we take this commercial timeout. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. My company made the switch to Commerce National Bank about six months ago. Our relationship officer was there every step of the way to make the transition as seamless as possible. We had an early hiccup with a deposit scanner, but they dropped everything and drove right to our offices to help. We couldn't feel better about our decision to switch. Instead of calling an 800 number and navigating through automated menus, now I call my Commerce National Bank Relationship Officer directly for any questions we have. Just knowing that they're so easily accessible and willing to help really puts me at ease. They offer the same technology as the big banks, but deliver it with superior service and training. They're also rated a full five stars by Bauer Financial. So if your organization is a small or medium-sized business in Orange County, you should make the switch too. Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit him online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they'll handle the rest. I got stuff to the right, more stuff to the left. 
got enough stuff, but I can't take a step. So I smart stopped and took a minute to think. I need a little better spot, not under the sink. With smart stop, I leave the stress at the door. Cause it's the smarter way to store. Smart stop bucks the system. Your first month's rent is just a buck. Your next three months are half off. Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station. Goodbye clutter, hello floors. Smart stop, the smarter way to store. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. As I said, Richard Tate, who is CEO of Cliffside Malibu Treatment Center, is now our guest. Richard, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rick. I really appreciate it. I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about your personal journey and kind of how that led you to the desire to create this organization, Cliffside Malibu Treatment Center, please. Well, you know, it was actually an accident for uh, between 12 years old and 32 years old, I don't ever remember drawing a sober breath, not one. And I had a brief bout with homelessness, and uh, I went into uh, a sober living home. You guys have a lot of those in Orange County. And uh, But what made it different was I attended a regular therapist two times a week, sometimes three times a week, and I was lucky because this therapist was actually top-notch and used the stages of change model that helped me really change my bad behaviors and install positive behaviors. And so I think that that was really uh, uh, what did it. And so I got sober and moved to Malibu where I thought I was going to retire and bought my dream home and went to a couple AA meetings there and quickly realized that I had just spent every dollar I had on a dream home to move into a neighborhood or a community that was basically the rehab capital of the world. I was meeting these people in AA meetings and they were telling me that it was like $50,000 a month to go to these rehabs and they weren't given an exit plan on the way out of here. In other words, they weren't told or taught how to stay sober in the real world, so they were actually just relapsing and coming back in. And it seemed like a good business model, but, you know, they're my people. I mean, that was my problem. And so it affected me, and I figured I could do it better. And when was that? Uh, That was back in 2003. So let's talk a little bit about Cliffside Malibu. Explain for those in our audience who may not be familiar with your facility and your approach. We're going to talk later in the interview about the change model in detail. So let's hold the stages of change model for a little bit later. But let's focus on your your philosophy and, and what people would experience at Cliffside Malibu Treatment Center. Well, what makes our, our facility different is we're considered to be the single most exclusive high-end drug and alcohol treatment facility in the world. And I say that with all humility. It's just like if you were an anesthesiologist and you were working with a bunch of surgeons, you'd know who the hacks were and who the the real surgeons were. Other prominent treatment centers around the country uh, have boards of directors, and it just seems like every time there's a problem with one of their families uh, or friends or loved ones, they end up in my center. So that's been happening for so long now that it, it just, it's gone past being a coincidence. And so really, it's just about being a top-notch facility with top-notch clinicians that are educated in, in the ability to really help people and who are not desensitized to the process of helping people. You know, there's a there's a lot of really good people in this industry, a lot of well-meaning people that just don't have the ability to help anyone, unfortunately. That's just not the way we do our, our recruiting and our hiring and maintaining the special people that work here. If I understand correctly, you have less than 20 beds at Cliffside Malibu, is that, is that correct? That's correct, 18, 18 beds. Okay. So you have a very, I mean, you must be 
having that size or uh, facility, you must have to be careful about who you admit and who you can help. Right. Well, you know, it, it's, there's three separate facilities uh, right next to one another. Uh, there's six beds uh, uh, per place, and it's considered to be a very small boutique-type facility. I mean, there are really big places out there. But here, I mean, we're so it's a lot of it is so cost prohibitive. I mean, it's anywhere between fifty-three to seventy-eight thousand dollars a month. So, if you can afford, you know, this is for people who absolutely, positively have to have uh, the finest of everything, and that includes their clinical care. So, at that price point, you usually don't have, you know. Uh, the rotten apple. Well, let's talk a little bit more about drug and alcohol addiction. Um, you know, the people that listen to our show tend to be entrepreneurs, business owners, successful kind of drivers who are looking to learn from the hour they spend with me and our guests here on Critical Mass Radio Show. So, but help us to understand from your perspective, having been, you know, around this for a while now and unfortunately dealing with your own set of demons as uh, growing up. How prevalent is drug and alcohol addiction? What are you seeing relative to, is it on the increase or decrease? Or, or just give us a general sense for the problem as it is faced by, you know, here in Southern California, but also in the country. Well, it's definitely on, on the rise, but not the way it was back when I was using. When I was using, it was sexy to do cocaine and heroin. And that's, you know, an alcohol. Today, it's mostly prescription pills, the alcohol mixed. So the street drugs have basically taken a back seat, not all the time, but, you know, to a significant degree. And they've been replaced with prescription drugs, which are by far, in a way, uh, uh, easier to get. You, you doctor shop, you can get it online. And really, these, these, Opiates, painkillers, they weren't meant, they weren't designed to take for two and a half, three, three and a half, four years of constant use. They were designed for back surgeries and knee surgeries and, and stuff like that. So two, three months, you're on these things, you titrate off, and you're fine. So what's happening now is, and it's the reason you're seeing all these people dying between two and a half uh, years and three and a half years of prescription drug use because these drugs were not meant for that type of duration of usage you're seeing an accidental overdose every 19 minutes in the United States oh. so basically what that means is you got a guy going going to bed at night takes a couple pills thinks he's going to wake up in the morning he's got a wife and kids whatever it is and never wakes up and it, that part of it is really sad. That's, that's the epidemic that I see. Richard, you, you said during your personal experience there was a brief time when you were homeless, but, I, but I'm wondering, were you able to be f functional as well during your addiction? I mean, were you able to hold a job and do other things? Or c tell us a little bit about your personal experience. In, in, in spurts, in spurts. I mean, I couldn't... I, the way I did drugs, uh, you know, I would do an ounce of cocaine every single day, no matter what, because wow. I'd be smoking it. Yeah, oh yeah. I was a, I'm, I'm a buck 95 now. I was 148 pounds dripping wet. Uh, I'd eat a Big Mac once a week just to keep myself alive. I'd be up uh, six to eight days uh, in a row, okay, uh, without sleep. I mean, I was in a bad way. So, no, there was no working when I did that. When I did that, and I was on those types of runs for sometimes two months, sometimes six months, you know, in a row, there is, that's a lifestyle. Okay, that's not, there's no time for work. But then you gather yourself together and you go out there and you rebuild. And it's exhausting. It's an exhausting uh, way to live. Are the people that you're helping at your treatment center, are they... Are they business owners? Are they? Are they? Would you, Would you say they're functioning and, and creating wealth in, in their life and running businesses, but have this addiction, or are they to the point where they're not able? Maybe similar to the situation that you were experiencing. 
no, the people in my place, I never had, you know, 50 plus thousand dollars to go to treatment. My attitude was if, if somebody would have asked me for $50,000, I would have said $50,000. If I had $50,000, I wouldn't have a cocaine problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the people that, uh, that I typically have, we have three billionaires or, or their families pretty much at all times. Uh, CEOs, Fortune 1000 CEOs, families, baseball uh, uh, owners, uh, football owners, heads of studios, families. I mean, this is, you know, we don't get the Lindsay Lohans and Mike Tysons of the world. We get the people typically that write their checks, you know, politicians, uh, families. And what what is great is we've never had a leak, not one. We run a respectful, empathetic, safe environment so people can really heal the way they're supposed to. So let's talk about the stages of change model and why you find it in your experience, both personally and now professionally, to be so impactful and able to address this very difficult issue. Talk to us about that, please. Well, the first thing is, you know, I discussed my using with you, right? And I was, by all accounts, uh, one of the worst addicts, okay, that really anybody's ever known. I mean, I was, I was really, really bad. And it got me well. Uh, so that's my personal experience. But the other part of it that I didn't really know at the time was a doctor by the name of uh, James Prochaska. He developed the stages of change. It's, the fancy term is the trans-theoretical approach to behavior change. And, and so what this guy did is he discovered the way human beings actually changed their behaviors. I mean, it was a big deal and how to move them through each stage. And what happens is, is when you move somebody through like a pre-contemplation stage to a contemplation stage, it's like pre-contemplation fills up with cement. So now your foundation is with the next stage. That's why there's no relapse, because you can't unring a bell. You can't go from, okay, maybe I do have this problem, uh, you know, I am... I do have a problem with my wife, and I do have a problem with the law, and I do have these health problems, and my boss is on me, and all these, all this wreckage I'm creating. Okay, you can't go from, and and the, and the, the common denominator is the drugs and the alcohol. You can't have that real realization, and then unring a bell and go backwards to I don't have a problem. That's just not the way human behavior works. So it's evidence based. This is based in science. And so the real question is, is why doesn't everybody do this? You know, for your audience, I think what would be really helpful to you, and this is the thing I'm most proud of, is 40% of our business comes from our alumni. That's unheard of. That's unheard of. Because what happens is, is when these people have this, this amazing experience, and they get well. Instead of coming back and relapsing over and over again, they refer family and friends. And people who do drugs and alcohol hang out with other people who do drugs and alcohol. So that's number one. And the second thing is, you know, people that come into treatment are, are not first-timers, typically. They've been to other centers. So if they've been to another center and then they walk into Cliffside, they go, oh, my God, I didn't even know this existed. It's like these people actually care. I mean, it's not just the feather beds and the thousand thread count sheets and the, and the turndown service and the concierge. That's not what it is, okay? It's that, it, it's, it's that, but that's just so that they don't leave. That's just so that they don't walk in and go, you know what, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. We eliminate all those, all those reasons to leave. What it is is we've got people who are so top-notch. I went through 2,000 uh, resumes. Out of those 2,000 resumes, we called back 100 people, and we only scheduled an appointment with two therapists, and we hired one of them. That's how we go through our process. We've got five full-time therapists for 18 people. That's unheard of. There's no way. But when you're seeing these people 
on an almost everyday basis and you're dealing with their families and their spouses and you're really spending that one-on-one time with them like it's your job in life to make this person okay out in the world and actually thrive, actually be the person he was always meant to be before he got derailed from drugs and alcohol, that person leaves, he loves us. There are a lot of pressures on business owners and top executives and um, their families as well because they have to make many sacrifices. Um, how important is your treatment to include, you mentioned that, but I, I guess I'd ask you for your professional kind of experience here, to include the larger network around the person who's staying at your facility. Is it focused solely on the person that's staying at Cliffside Malibu, or are you requiring them to bring their family and other members to help with the treatment? Oh, it's everything. It's everything. Typically what will happen is, you know, for the first couple weeks, you develop that bond with that client, and they're rolling. And then at about the 10-day, two-week period, start working the family in to therapy sessions. And so if they, about 25% of our people are, are here locally from Southern California, but 75% are from, you know, all over the country and around the world. So what will happen is there will be phone uh, teleconferences, uh, phone sessions, if you will, with with either uh, the family members or whoever that person's in a relationship with or whatever whoever that person is or people are in that person's life that really means something to him uh, because it affects everyone. And what, what really typically uh, puts people into relapse is, you know, how they deal in their relationships, okay? So you really have to have that sorted out and people committed to continuing their therapy with their therapists. We get a lot of referrals from therapists because they they know of us. I mean, they, we're in the industry. So uh, when we send them back to their therapist, typically they've been seeing their therapist once a week and they think they've been working on themselves. Well, after doing what we do here, okay, and having such an amazing experience, you know, we return them back to their therapist to continue their good work, and usually twice a week to okay. see that therapist. The good work that you're doing is was what I wanted to explore, but this is also a business-oriented uh, talk show. And so I guess my final question for you is from a business perspective. You said a high, a, a lot of people come to you by referrals of, of your alumni. I'm wondering, what else are you doing or have you done to build this business so that you're able to make it kind of the business that it is today? How do you market it? How, how do people find you? Talk to us a little bit about, in your space, how you're growing your practice and making sure that you're helping the people that you can help. Well, the important thing, the important thing was to develop different streams of revenue. That was the most important thing. So we wrote a book called Ending Addiction for Good. And Dr. Prochaska, who is the fifth most referenced psychologist in, in history, and I think the other four are dead, like Freud and Young and Erickson and those guys, he endorsed the book. And so that immediately gave us a certain cachet amongst uh, psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists throughout the country. I mean, you can't even become a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, uh, unless you've read his textbook, I believe. At least at least half of them require his text. His textbook is required reading. So they know who he is, and so we're trusted in that regard. But really, what it is, is I was very, as a CEO, if you think about it, I was very irresponsible at the time because I didn't really care if I made any money for the first two or three years. What I said was, I'm going to have the finest treatment facility in the world and create the best reputation in the world, and I'm going get it, to get it out there, okay? And I got it out there you know, through the book. We are the only treatment center with a full-time addiction researcher, okay? Because, you know, any, any you know, 
first mover or top dog in an industry uh, should be in the R&D business, okay? And, and that's what we are. So Connie, my co-author, is speaking at, uh, all the time at, at psychological universities and uh, huge groups of people. She's going to Jerusalem to speak, you know, next to Dan Siegel, who is the preeminent psychologist, one of them, of our, of our day, and in Jerusalem for the Neuroplasticity Conference, okay, how, how the mind heals itself. You know, we're out there. Uh, the book's out there. Uh, Connie's out there. We treat our people. We treat our people with such respect, and a lot of times people who come to us, most times, are so injured that to treat them well would be a shock to their system. Mm. But to really love them, and empathize with their situation and teach them a new way to thrive in the world. That creates a lot of business. So it's kind of like, you know, build it and they will come. Yes. And you just eat the best of everything. If you, if you get the best of something, you know, it's just, you know, there's a market for it. And that's what I knew. And it just happened uh, by accident. And I'm glad it did because... There was there was a need for it, and, and I filled the space. Well, I appreciate um, what you've done, what you're continuing to do, the fact that you gave us time here on the radio program to share not only your business philosophy, but sort of your business's philosophy, which is powerful. If someone wanted to learn more about Cliffside Malibu Treatment Center, how do they find you online? They would just go to cliffsidemalibu.com, and, you know, it's so cost prohibitive, I get it, so that's why we wrote the book, and just go to the website and order the book, it's like 10 bucks, and all the proceeds go to charity, every dollar, uh, uh, to support uh, non-profits in Southern California, uh, people can't uh, afford treatment, and they can get it, and so we're really grateful the book is, is selling uh, tremendously, it's got tremendous acclaim, and uh, we're raising a lot of money for a lot of people who couldn't uh, afford treatment otherwise, and I'm very grateful for that. Why, thank you for your time today and being a friend of the program and a member of the critical mass business community here in Southern California. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, two very interesting entrepreneurs and uh, business people my producer, Rachel, did an outstanding job of finding two people today who really have a philosophy of helping people. And I um, so enjoyed doing the show. We ran a little bit long on time. I appreciate the engineer, Paul Roberts, giving us the time to do that. Our marketing communications manager is Kelly Fultis. Our guest coordinator is always Kathleen Shepard. And I am your host, Rick Francie, saying until the next time we have a chance to speak, here's hoping that all of your decisions moves your business in a positive direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass, radio show right here on octalkradio.net.